more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. Now, if you were here last week, you may remember that Jesus was in Jerusalem celebrating the Passover feast with his disciples. And now, because the the pressure was starting to increase on Jesus, uh, because of his ministry, he decides to leave Jerusalem, which is in in, uh, the Judean region down in the south, and head up to Galilee, uh, which is his his hometown area up in the north. And now there are two routes from Judea to Galilee. The first is the efficient route. It's the one that, that, that would pop up on Google Maps, and that's to head straight north from Judea, right through the region called Samaria, and eventually you end up in Galilee. But a lot of the Jews would ignore their GPS and go a different way. And they would, they would, what they would do is they would go over the Jordan River, north along this ridge over here, and then cross over the Jordan River again to Galilee. And the reason they did, you know, they took this inefficient route around this way was because then they would, could avoid the Samaritans who lived in Samaria. They literally did not like interacting with them so much that they would take this, this inefficient, longer route to avoid having to, to deal with, meet these people. Now, the roots of this contempt were hundreds of years old. You see, the, the nation of Israel had divided into two separate kingdoms, a northern one and a southern one. And in 722 BC, the Assyrians captured the northern kingdom, and the Assyrians deported many of the Israelites from the northern kingdom, while many Assyrians and other foreigners settled in Samaria and intermarried with the remaining Jews. And as a result of these marriages, there there was not only blended nationalities, but also blended worship. And so the region of the, of the northern kingdom, now known as Samaria, was, was a place of mixed marriages and corrupt, compromised religion. And so the Jews from the southern kingdom treated the, treated the mixed-race Samaritans with contempt. They wanted nothing to do with them. In fact, you go down to verse 9, uh, John makes the commentary that Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. They're like, we're, listen, we're, not, we're, we're just going to leave you alone. We're not going to go through your land. We're avoiding you. We would rather go over the river twice than have to deal with any of you lot. And for centuries now, this deep-seated animosity between Jew and Samaritan had grown. And so Jesus has to go from Judea to, to Galilee. Which way does he go? Through Samaria. Now his disciples are probably like, well, I mean, I guess he's in a hurry. He's just trying to make the most efficient time. Or they thought, you know, maybe he's trying to, to attract less attention because he isn't going to run into any other Jews on this journey, right? But Jesus clearly went very purposely because he had some work he wanted to do uh, when he was there. Let's pick it up in verse 5. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. And a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. And so Jesus and his disciples are taking this long and and taxing trip from 
Judea to Galilee, and they decide to stop and, and, and rest in the, in the heat of the day. And the disciples head into town to pick up some food, and Jesus rests by this well. And, 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 but he's not there long, though, when a woman approaches the well to draw water. Now, now, what do we know about this woman? Well, we can actually pull quite a bit out of this text. The first is that she really wanted to be alone. Uh, see, when it says that she came, it, it, she came at the sixth hour, that would depend on whose watch you were wearing. If you were wearing a Roman watch, uh, th- that would be 6 a.m. or 6 p.m. If you were wearing a Jewish watch, that would mean it was noon. And I think it's noon for a number of reasons, the most significant being the fact that they're alone. Uh, There's nobody else at the well except for Jesus and this woman. I mean, at 6 a.m., the well would have been super busy, and at 6 p.m., the well would have been super busy because that's when people went to the well. See, it was hard work to draw water and bring it back into town. And so so you don't want to do that in the middle of the day. You do it early in the morning or you do it later in the evening when the temperature is a bit cooler. addition, this is about four months before harvest, which means that it is in between the time you plant and the time you harvest, which means it's the hot time of the year. And so right here in the middle of the day, it's hot, it's noon, and this woman chooses this time to get some water. Now, what's also strange about this is that historians tell us that in Sychar, she would have had to uh, to, to leave town, go through the wall, the, t- the town wall, and she would have passed several other wells on her way to this particular well uh, that she went to that was uh, a half a mile or so outside of town. And so it begs two questions for me. Why this well and why at this time? Why did she go to this well and why did she go at this time? Well, This well was Jacob's well. It was the well that that Jacob gave to his son Joseph when he gave him a a specific parcel of land. So it had spiritual significance to both the Jews and the Samaritans. And and so maybe it was the case that that she was someone who was at least spiritually minded. and, and, And she went to a very specific well and had a very specific spiritual that, that had a, a specific spiritual connotation for her and for others. Maybe, maybe, maybe she went to be alone, maybe, maybe to, to, to spend time in meditation or prayer or whatever it was she was going to do, maybe. And, 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 and then she gets to the swell, and she runs into the last person she wants to see, a Jewish man, right? And then it gets worse. The Jewish man talks to her. Oh, great. And then this Jewish man doesn't just talk to her, he asks her a question, and he asks, he asks her to give him some water. And so he makes this request to her, and, and in verse 9, she pushes back. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? What are you doing? Why are you asking me for a drink? For Jews have no dealing with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is, that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. And so she responds, you ain't got no bucket. You ain't got no rope. This well is deep. That, by the way, that's my, that's my translation of, of verse 11. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks 
of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. She asked Jesus, so where do I get this living water? And you know, her question is one each person asks at some point. Where can I find that which satisfies? I know you've asked it, whether you've verbalized it or not, because your life is a pursuit of, of of, is in pursuit of something to satisfy your thirst. Whether you're a homemaker or vice president, a mechanic or engineer, a teacher or a student, you make decisions you, that you hope will, in the long term, bring you satisfaction. But we find living water only by coming to Jesus. Only through Him will we discover the satisfaction that we so desperately are looking for in 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 other things, then the only remedy for our part soul is the living water freely dispersed by Jesus. The solution is that simple. We abandon our attempts to find satisfaction on our own, and we turn to Jesus for lasting satisfaction. But the more I think about it, though, the more I'm persuaded that that is just too simple for, for many, many people. You see, we're convinced that we can do it ourselves. We, 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 we think that... If, if we're ever going to be happy and satisfied, it'll be because we have done something. We've climbed up the ladder or we've done the work on our own. Ultimately, think we've got to find our satisfaction in our own efforts because we know best what we need and we're the best ones to supply it. A lot of us are like the man that, 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 Jesus once, uh, you know, that came to Jesus one day and asked, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You see, we want to do something. We want to, to earn it. And, and we, we don't want to admit or acknowledge that, that we're unable by ourselves ever to be fulfilled. We don't want to concede that we need help. And so what we would rather do is just begin filling our jars with water that doesn't satisfy and then turn to Jesus and ask him for water that actually quenches our thirst. And this promise of living water is written throughout the pages of, of the Bible. And it also... Uh, we find the, the result of rejecting this living water, the barrenness of seeking satisfaction apart from God. For instance, we, 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 we see it when the prophet Jeremiah spoke God's words to the people of Israel. He said, for my people have committed a double evil. They have abandoned me, the fountain of living water, and dug cisterns for themselves, cracked cisterns that cannot hold water. In other words, God's chosen people had the fountain of living water open and available to them. Their thirst could be quenched. Their souls satisfied by God. And yet, tragically, they turn from the all-satisfying source of life and strength and attempted to find satisfaction elsewhere. Instead of drinking freely from the fountain of life that God offered, they took out their, their, their hammers and chisels and started carving out little bowls and digging wells. And every time they poured water into the handcrafted vessels, it leaked out. They thought, I know what's best. I, I know how to be happy. I want to do it my way. You know, this really is the, this really is the essence of sin. Pursuing satisfaction in something other than God. 
You see, sin is not fundamentally a failure to check certain moral boxes. I mean, we think of sin primarily as an action we do or we don't do. Sin is when I lie, curse, or steal. But I sin any time I pursue satisfaction in something other than God. Now, that's revealed often in lying, cursing, and stealing, but it's also seen in pride, in self-reliance, in, even in apathy. Anytime we pursue satisfaction in something other than God, we commit idolatry. We're placing that thing on the altar of our hearts and giving to it, hoping for it to do what only God can do. See, God is not opposed to your pursuit for happiness and satisfaction. He made you to pursue genuine happiness, joy, and satisfaction, but to pursue it in one person, in the one person that can truly offer it. And Jesus here makes clear to the Samaritan woman that joy and satisfaction can only be found in him. Now up to this point, even though you can see she's got a, a bit bristly about her racial and religious shame because of the relationship with the Jews, her personal shame, that, that which we all carry, remained nicely protected and stuffed down inside of her until Jesus goes there. Uh, verse 16, Jesus said to her, go call your husband. And she didn't have a phone, so that meant going back a half mile to town. Call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband, and so what you have said is true. What is our instinct when we do something wrong? It's to hide, right? Our initial reaction is to hide. And then if someone catches us uh, after trying to hide and calls us out, what do we do? Well, we give a half-truth, right? And that's exactly what she does here. Jesus says, go get your husband. She's like, ah, I, I, I'd love to, but I, I'm, not, I'm not married, which is technically true with a little dash of, please don't dig anymore. But Jesus digs. Jesus loves her too much. And he says to her, yeah, that's technically true, but I know you've had five husbands and you're shacking up with a guy that you're not even married to now. You see, he knew that she was attempting to quench her thirst through relationships. She was moving from one bad relationship to another and from one bed to another. But like a traveler in the desert, her thirst was never quenched. And like this woman, we too, because of our sin, are thirsting for something, some experience, some person, some relationship, some position that we think will satisfy. And yet, Everything we turn to leaves us empty and longing for more. So what does Jesus do? Well, he pulls out her shame and he lays it on the table. And, and, and now we know why she goes to the well at noon. She goes to the well at noon so that she can hide, so that she can avoid running into others. You know, she didn't have to, you know, at that time of day, she wouldn't fear running into all the other women of the town, didn't have to run into her exes, didn't have to run into anybody that, that maybe knew her history. She could hide. 
And so because of all this, she kind of kicks into this shame cycle. And by the way, if you Google the phrase shame cycle, you're going to have loads and loads of theories as to why people feel shame and why they get stuck there. And a lot of theories on, on how people can break free from that shame. But I'll give you the one word Bible answer, Jesus. You see, this wasn't just some random Jewish guy sitting at a well. It was the Messiah that the Samaritans and the Jews have been looking for. And before she can even recognize that, the first step Jesus had to take was to call out her sin. He had to find that little spot that she had buried so deep that no one would see it. And he had to pull it out and say, I know your sin. I know you. See, when... When we are dealing with shame, we don't want to be known. We, we want that part of us to be hidden. But the reality is Jesus sees it. Jesus sees our sin and he sees our guilt and he sees our shame and he sees the darkest and smelliest places in our lives. And, and, and so he just lays that all out on the table. And she responds exactly how most of us would. She changes the topic and she tries to get him to fight about, um, you know, to him to fight with her about religion. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. So what does she do? She goes right into the Jewish Samaritan argument, and she's like, all right, so let's, let's fight about this. We're, where are we supposed to worship God? And she's comp she completely changes the topic on him, but by doing that, she reveals a crack in her armor. Because you see, she must not have thought that this random Jewish guy was going to know anything about Samaritan theology. And Samaritan theology says this, after Moses, there are no more prophets until the Messiah. And she says, sir, I perceive that you might be a prophet. What is she getting at? Is, is it possible that she is starting to suspect that there's something different about this guy? Verse 21, Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. So he says, this argument, you want to start, it's useless. This argument, I'm not, I'm not going to have this one with you. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. So he does poke back a little bit. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. There is so much great theology jammed into that passage that I don't have time to get into. But here's the deal. Every bit of it was pointing to the Messiah and saying that one day the Messiah would come. A Messiah that the Jews believed in, that the, a Messiah that the Samaritans believed in. I'm not going to argue with you about the religious nuances, Jesus says, but here's the deal. There's a Savior, a Messiah that's coming. And so then she asks a question, kind of in disguise. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ, and when he comes, he will tell us all things. You see what she's doing? There's like this careful little hope baked into her question. It's like she's fishing. She's just throwing out the line out and she's waiting to see if he bites. He bites. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. See, here's the reality. 
like this lady, we often want to fight or debate about religion, hide behind the cover of that. And Jesus takes it to a much more uncomfortable place. And he starts by calling out our sin. You see, because that's the first essential step. We need to accept the truth about ourselves. And, and, and the reason we carry around so much shame is, is usually because we've got some stuff, right? We've, we've got some stuff, some baggage, some things that we have done that cause us guilt. And that guilt added up, adds up to the point where we begin to, to feel shame. And so we push that down inside of us. And, and, and so we, we, we want to fight and debate with, with Jesus about religion. And he wants to talk about this stuff. You see, we start with our sin, and only then do we realize, when we realize that we have sinned, do we realize that we need a Savior, and so that Jesus can say to us, I who speak to you am He. Verse 27, just then his disciples came back, a bit awkward timing, but uh, I mean, the whole thing is getting good at this point, and the guys just come back at this moment, and they marveled. <clears throat> That he was talking with a woman, but no one said, why do you speak or why are you talking with her? And why does, why does John bring, bring that up? John brings it up because he knows that they were all thinking it. They didn't say it, but they were thinking it. They're like, listen, Jesus, you're talking to someone of the wrong sex, the wrong race, the wrong religion. If you want to be the Jewish Messiah, you're doing it wrong, Right? And she gets her spidey sense that things are not going well here, so she dips out of there. So the woman left her water jar, so she just leaves her stuff, and went away into the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and were coming to him. I just want you to picture that scene and just put a pin in that for later. Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Think about how remarkable this is. Just a little bit before noon, this woman was hiding. And her shame had gotten the best of her. And she was making sure that she wouldn't have to interact with anybody. That all of the things that, that she had done would stay hidden. And just afternoon, everything's changed and all the things that she had done became the center point of the conversation she wanted to start in that small town. She started the day by saying, leave me alone. And she ended up the day by being the voice of salvation, calling out to an entire town, come and see. And who's in that town? Well, the other women that she's avoiding. Her ex-husband's. And her lover, everybody, and she says to them, come and see the man who told me everything that I've ever done. And the truth is, the same Jesus that set her free from her shame wants to set us free from ours. And I don't know what you walked in with here today. I don't know if you've got little parcels of shame for something that you did this week. I don't know if you've got just a huge pile of shame from something that you've been carrying for decades. I, 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 I don't know what you're carrying, but come and see Jesus. Come and see the man who told me all that I'd ever done. 
Is it possible he is the Christ? Is he the one who can set you free from that shame that you haven't been able to shake from in your life? Now, for those of you who are Christians, here's the thing. Whether you realize it or not, you have already been set free from your shame. See, when Jesus said the time is coming and is even now here when all who worship the Father will worship him in spirit and in truth. There's a lot of great theology there, but part of it is the truth part. And that means not just accepting you know, Jesus for who he is, the truth about him, but accepting also what he says about you and who you are now. See, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the fact that because Jesus declared, I am. We can know, just like John the Baptist, I am not. And that's an important theology. It's important to know that you are not God, that you are not the Savior, that you are not the answer to your problems. But for those of us who struggle with shame, as soon as we hear that message, I am not, we go, yeah, I know I'm not. I knew it. I am worthless. No, you're not. Here's the, here's the thing. Jesus did something remarkable on the cross that is echoed into this story with the Samaritan woman. And that is that on the cross, Jesus exposed all of the sin of the world by p- placing it on himself. He dealt with it once and for all. And he, and he offers all that believe in him a new creation. And what that means is all of the little sources of shame in your life, all of the sins that you have committed, all of the sins that have been committed against you, the guilt that you feel because of your sins, and the shame that you feel because of your sins, all of that was nailed to the cross of Jesus. And what that means is he rips all of that out of you. He rips all of those parcels of shame and guilt, and all of them are nailed to the cross, leaving a hole. And in that hole, he places himself. Jesus fills the hole, and his goodness and his righteousness and his holiness now become who you are in your new self. And this woman ran into the town, a new person. And the disciples showed up at the wrong time to, to see any of that. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. You, know, you sent us to town to get food. Eat, eat something. And he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? In other words, are you serious? Uh, Jesus sent us to town to get some food. Did someone t- make a, a Chick-fil-A run and then you know, kind of looped back and brought it to him? And Jesus said, Guys, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his works. The disciples, at this point in time, they had a very myopic, very narrow view of what the Messiah was going to do. They, they thought, you know, he's going to teach us. He's going to save some Jews. And, and maybe he'll throw the, overthrow the Ro, uh, Romans in the, in, in the process, right? And, and Jesus is like, no, no, no. This is my work. This is the reason I went through Samaria. Because I'm on a mission to find and to save sinners. Do not say there are four, yet four months, then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see the fields are white for harvest. And when the disciples looked up, what did they see in the fields? All of these people coming out from the town. There's a whole town is coming across the fields. And he says, already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life 
so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. What Jesus is doing, this is important, is right in this moment when he could add to the shame of the disciples for missing the point of his ministry, but he doesn't. Jesus doesn't add to their shame. Jesus takes it away. So what does he do? When the disciples missed the, the whole point, he invited them into the process with them. He's like, guys, see all these people? You now get to be part of what I've started. You get to tell these people how they can have eternal life. Let's go to work. And it says, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. This is so amazing. The source of her shame became the seed of their salvation. She hid it. But when it was laid out on the table and, and those people saw that Jesus had set her free, they wanted to know more about him. And so when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. And the Samaritans say to Jesus, will you stay with us? And he goes, yeah, I'd love to stay in your house. And many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves, and we know that he is indeed the Savior of the world. One woman is set free from her shame. And an entire town comes and hears the gospel and many are saved. And she cannot take an ounce of credit. The only thing she brought was her sin and her shame. And Jesus took care of the rest. Today we're going to take the Lord's Supper together, which is a celebration of, of Jesus' work on the cross. And, and we're going to take a little piece of bread um, an emblem of his body given for us. And we're going to take a little bit of wine, an emblem of his blood that was, was shed for us. And, and don't miss this about the Lord's Supper. The, the death that Jesus faced on the cross was the most shameful death anyone could face. So Jesus went to the cross to, in shame to take your shame. And when we take the Lord's Supper, one of the, things that we, one of the things that we do is we remember. We remember what Jesus did for us. And so this is what I want you to remember today. I want you to come to the table this morning. And, and this is for those of us who have professed faith um, in, in Jesus, who follow Jesus. You've placed your faith in him. If you have, you're invited to this table. And so come to the table and take the bread and take the cup. And I'm going to ask you to do something uncomfortable. I want you to remember the, that thing that's caused you shame, that's caused you guilt. I want you to remember it. And then I want you to remember that Jesus completely took that to the cross, that he completely handled it to the point that one of the prophets was able to say he is going to cast that so far away that he will not remember your sins any longer. And I want you to remember it so that you can remember that he don't remember it. And then you can stand, not in shame, but as the righteous 
adopted son and daughter of the king who is forgiven and set free and will have eternal life one day in glory. And, 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 and you're going to meet this nameless woman. You're going to meet a bunch of people from her town. In fact, I, I wonder how far downstream it went from that day. How many people will be able to trace their salvation back to her? Maybe one of, one of you will be able to trace all the way back to that chance meeting with the Jewish Messiah sitting at a well, this Messiah who offered her salvation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you so much for, for this woman. Uh, in an odd, really odd way, we, we thank you for uh, her sin and shame because we thank you that that became the seed um, for, the, for the whole town to hear the gospel. And, and for many of us, we're, we're walking around today carrying little packets of shame inside of us. And so we pray that we would have the, the, the courage to give those up to you. We, would, we, we, we thank you uh, that for those of us who are in Christ, that you've already dealt with it, that, that the shame is already dealt with. Help us to begin to live more and more, as long as it takes over this course of life, and sometimes it's slow, but help us to live more and more in our new reality instead of, of, of dragging that old reality behind us. And we pray all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.